Last week and the week before that, we were in a small mini-series on the uh, fear of man and pleasing people. We springboarded actually, get this set here, off of the end of chapter 5 into that little mini-series, and now we're back to John. We're in John 6. So we're making progress. Um, this is the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. There are 71 verses. Um, it's a big chapter. It's a very significant chapter, as we will see. Um, if you remember back to when we began chapter 5, we said chapters 5 through 12 sort of constitute a unit in the Gospel of John. Um, essential to these chapters is the rising opposition to Jesus. So chapters 1 to 4 sort of laid the foundation for, yes, he's Messiah. What kind of Messiah is he going to be? Um, and the importance of faith in him. Now, these chapters, 5 to 12, are really focusing on the rising opposition, the, the Jewish leadership, which is wanting to put him to death, and then the Jewish population, for the most part, which is rejecting him. And the question is, what was it about Jesus that led so many people to reject him? I mean, if he really was Messiah, why aren't more people believing in him, right? And there are a number of answers we will get to that question but in chapter 5, uh, it begins with this third sign that Jesus did, right? He heals this lame man uh, who had been lame for 38 years. And he does it on the Sabbath. And we said that the sign was meant to highlight two things. It was meant, first of all, to highlight that Jesus is the promised Messiah who is God's agent of the new creation. He is bringing new creation realities to pass. One day he will transform it all. He's the agent of the resurrection. He's the king. He's the one who will inaugurate the kingdom. And the signs give us small glimpses, we said, of the, the new creation sort of bursting forth into this present age. Um, so what he's doing, in an instant, he heals this man laying 38 years. But we also noted that in that sign, Jesus doesn't heal anyone else. There's a multitude of invalids, and he heals this one man. And we said the point of that was that Jesus did not come first to inaugurate the physical new creation realities universally. He came, first of all, to transform lives spiritually. That's the primary way the new creation invades this present age, is in transform lives through Christ. Second thing that sign highlighted was the deity of Christ. Remember, Jesus works on the Sabbath primarily to show that he works on the same terms, the same prerogatives as God the Father. And that lit the Jewish leadership up, right? Um, he is claiming equality with God. Um, that was the primary reason, and through the rest of the Gospel of John, it's the primary reason they want to put him to death. Um, they feel that it's a threat to their monotheism. There is one God. And the whole purpose of chapter 5 is just to say, yes, there is one God. Jesus is not threatening that. But the oneness of God not only stands for his uniqueness, but his unity as Father, Son, Spirit. Unique, um, one God, and yet in three persons, each being fully God. Um, and it was a magnificent um, exposition, explanation of that in, in chapter 5. So that's where we ended uh, in chapter 5, the Jewish leadership ready to put Jesus to death. Jesus exposing the, one of the main reasons for that is they love the praises of men. 
rather than the praises that come from God. Jesus' devotion to his Father um, exposed their love for the praises of people. Well, that brings us now to chapter 6. And if chapter 5 highlighted the plotting of the Jewish leadership to put Jesus to death because of his claims to deity, then chapter 6 highlights the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish masses for his failure to align with their wrong expectations of Messiah. Chapter 6 unfolds very similar to the way chapter 5 did. It begins with a sign, and then the rest of the chapter explains that sign, right? So he heals the lame man. The rest of the chapter really explains what you're supposed to conclude from that sign. Same pattern in chapter 6. This morning, we're only going to be looking at the sign itself in verses 1 through 15, a very familiar story, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and this is the first story in the Gospel of John, which has a parallel to any of the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Up to this point, it's been all pretty much new material that John has given us. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is also the only miracle other than the resurrection which is recorded in all four Gospels. It's a very significant point in Jesus' ministry. We're going to see just why uh, this morning. You can see on your outline, I've entitled this uh, passage here, The All-Sufficient Provider of Heavenly Manna and the Heavenly King Who Refuses an Earthly Crown. We'll unpack what that means. So let's begin in verses 1 through 4, the setting of Jesus' fourth sign. Let's read it. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, is at hand. So there are seven messianic signs recorded in the Gospel of John, and this is number four, right? The first one was changing water into wine. The second... Remember what that one was? The healing of the official son at the end of John 4. The third was the healing of the lame man. And now this is number four uh, this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. And the chapter begins with a multitude of fickle followers in verses 1 through 2, which we just read. In chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem, but now after some time, we're not told how much, uh, we discover he's back in Galilee. You can see there at the very, very beginning, after this, um, could very well be at least a half of a year has passed. He's back in Galilee in his Galilean ministry. Uh, the other Gospels give a lot of space to talking about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Um, this is the only place in John that focuses on Jesus' Galilean ministry. Um, but John intentionally selects this story because it really summarizes what Jesus was about and the key problem uh, with the crowd in Galilee. So verse 1, Jesus departs to the other side of the sea. Um, we're told in the other Gospels that he's retreating with his disciples for a time of rest. Um, they cross the sea in a boat to the east side near to a town called Bethsaida, sort of the northeast part of the, the lake. So you can see Sea of Galilee. And then down a bit southeast of there, it's a mountainous region. Okay? Uh, it's known as the Golan Heights. If you go to Israel, um, it's quite, quite hilly, quite mountainous, and that's exactly what we'll see here. Um, so that's where he retreats with his disciples. But in verse 2, we're introduced to this large crowd. 
Um, it says they were following Jesus. Following in John is a key discipleship word. Um, it's much more than they're just physically following him, although they are doing that. Um, they have been following Jesus. This crowd um, is consisting of thousands of people, as we're going to see. They're excited about Jesus. They are identifying as his disciples. Um, they would call themselves disciples of Jesus, of this rabbi. Following Jesus wherever he goes. But in verse 2, we get an indicator that something is not right. Look what it says. A large crowd is following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Um, Jesus did many miracles, which aren't recorded in this gospel, in the gospel of John. Much of his time in Galilee was spent healing and teaching. And because of this, people are zealously following him. Now, this is the third time. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? Many people were believing him, following him, because they saw the signs. This is the third time that phrase is used. And every time it's used, sort of alarms need to be going off. Something's not right here. Go back to chapter 2, verse 23, the first instance of this. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Sounds good. When they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, how do we know if something's wrong? Jesus, on his part, didn't entrust himself to them. He's not giving himself to them because he knows what's in their heart. And then the whole Nicodemus passage, Nicodemus is a case in point example of these people. Sees the signs, willing to affirm the supernatural in Jesus, loves the works that Jesus is doing. And as soon as Jesus begins to speak and shine the light of truth, exposing Nicodemus' lost condition, revealing the glory of his person, what does Nicodemus do? He retreats back into the dark. That's exactly what's happening with the, the crowd and this time, um, look back over at uh, chapter 4, verse 45. Again, it happens. <clears throat> Jesus prophesies that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Sounds good. But they're not honoring him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had tuned and gone to the feast. People coming to Christ, it's happening again in this story. They're attracted to Jesus by his signs. Um, they don't, not interested in his words. And the same is true today. True faith is not proven by its initial reaction to Jesus. True faith is proven by its perseverance, the more of Jesus that it comes to know who he is and what he has accomplished. To say it another way, the purpose of Jesus' signs was to drive people to his words, right? They were, remember back in chapter 5, the works of Christ were one of the main ways the Father testified to his identity as the Son, as the representative of the Father, what do you do? You conclude he's the son, he's the prophet, what should you do? You should run to his, his words. That's not what the people are after. They're after more signs. And, uh, we'll get a case in point example this morning. Well, next we come to verse 3 in, uh, in chapter 6. It says Jesus goes up on the mountain and there he sits, sits down with his disciples. This is an 
interrupted retreat. So he's going away, have a time of rest with his disciples. The crowd sees him. They, they run on the shoreline down as they follow him in the boat. Um, and they meet him when he comes to the shore. In this verse, Jesus goes up into the mountain. Okay, so it's like a hillside. It's very mountainous country. Um, and he sits down the position of a teacher in authority. The other Gospels tell us that what also is happening at this time, he's teaching them, and he's doing more miracles. He's healing, all going on at the, at the same time. John does not give us that information. Finally, look at verse 4. We get one more important detail. When did all of this take place? He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now this is very important for several reasons. Number one... Um, this is the second of three Passovers in John. The first happened in chapter 2. goes up to Jerusalem, Passover. It's the second one. The last one's going to come as crucifixion uh, when he dies as the final Passover lamb. Um, so almost a year has elapsed since chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. It's also important because in John 5 to 12, the Jewish feasts reappear in just about every single story. Right? So chapter 5, he goes to Jerusalem for a feast possibly the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and the whole point is to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish feasts, just as he's the fulfillment of the temple and the rituals, um, especially Passover. He will be the final Passover lamb. And this chapter is going to highlight the bodily sacrifice of Christ, which uh, makes that possible. Finally, Passover was a time of nationalistic zeal for the Jewish people. Um, to which they longed for a redeemer like Moses who would come and deliver them from Roman oppression. So it's a time of just, just heightened patriotism, if you will. Um, think of the 4th of July in America. Everyone is, is on edge and heightened for the, the nationality and the, the independence of Israel. We are the people of God, right? Longing for the new exodus and the inauguration of the kingdom. Uh, and that's going to be very important later on in this story. So all of that is the setting of the sign. Look with me now at verses 5 to 10, the preparation for the sign. So this crowd is eagerly pursuing Jesus for his signs. Um, and Jesus goes up on the hillside. And again, just like in all the previous stories, Jesus is fully in control here. Um, he knows what he's doing, and he is after. Yes, he has compassion on them, but he's mainly after revealing himself. To them. So as he watches these masses of people flooding the hillside, he decides to feed them. So look at verse 5. Jesus plans to feed the multitude. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He asked Philip where bread can be purchased in order to feed the people. Um, he probably selects Philip because Philip is from Bethsaida, a nearby town. He would have been familiar with the area. Um, the word bread comes up five times in this story and 21 times total in this chapter. Right? Significant word. Um, Jesus is going to use bread not just to feed the people, but to teach something very significant about his person. That's why he's doing this sign. Again, it's intentional. Just note the patience and kindness of Jesus. He's already given sign after sign, and he's just so patient 
to reveal himself again to people who are just so hard and cold, does it to us as well. Look at verse 6. We get an important clarification. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. So Jesus asks where to buy bread, not because Jesus wants to buy bread. He knows what he's going to do, but he asks it in order to test his disciples. He doesn't just want to teach the crowd. He wants to put the faith of the disciples to the test. He wants to expose how far their faith has yet to go. And Philip responds to the test not by saying, Jesus, you're the Son of God. We've already seen you transform water into wine. We, we, we know who you are. You are the unique Son of God. You don't need to buy bread. You're the creator of everything, right? That's not what he says. Philip has a long way to go, and Jesus knows that, and he's after Philip's faith as well. Philip rather responds by pointing out the sheer impossibility of feeding this crowd. At the end of verse 10, we're told that it's made up of 5,000 men. Uh, Matthew tells us that does not include women and children. There were easily 20,000 plus people here. So just imagine 20,000 um, people all over this hillside. Jesus at the top of the hill. Um, he's been healing them. He's been teaching them. It's the end of the day and they're hungry. Um, it's an impossible situation. Jesus wants to feed them. That's a ton of food. Think about feeding 20,000 people. It's a lot of food. Look the way Philip responds. He says in verse 7, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. A denarius was worth a day's wage for the common worker. So you're talking eight months' salary would not be enough for everybody to have a mouthful, to have a bite. Philip says. There's no way we can feed this multitude. So Philip is revealing how little of Jesus he actually actually knows, how much he's still depending on his resources. And Jesus knows that, and he's after Philip's faith. And it's still much the same for us as his disciples as well. The disciples are not in the same crowd that in the same camp as the crowd. Um, they have true faith in Christ, and yet there's a long way to go. Um, and Jesus is so faithful to them, so faithful to us. He knows where you're at. He knows where you need to grow. Um, and he's committed himself to you. He'll bring tests in our lives in order to show us how much we're still depending on our own resources, that we have cast ourselves on him, that we know him, love him, just what he's going to teach us um, this morning. Well, Jesus wants the disciples and all of us to realize the magnitude of what's about to take place and remove any way to excuse it away. Um, a very liberal interpretation of this passage says that there was actually no miracle at all. Um, Jesus just gets a, a boy to share his lunch and gives an example and everybody decides to start sharing and that, that's really what happened here. Um, it's really ludicrous. Um, and if you look at the details of the story, um, you, you see that clearly isn't the case. Um, one way you know that's not the case is because if some people have and some people don't and they're sharing, then everybody's going to have less, right? Nobody's coming away full. Um, another way we know that is in verse 8. Um, Mark gives us a little detail. It says Jesus sends his disciples um, into the crowd to look and see what food is actually on hand. And this is all they come back with. Look at verse 8. 
One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Um, that's it. This crowd did not come prepared. Um, <laughs> that's all they have on hand. That's all that they can scrounge up. Um, five barley loaves. Um, so don't think of a loaf of bread you get at the grocery store. Um, they're more like hard biscuit-like, cracker-like, flat pieces of barley bread. Um, barley was what was eaten by the poorer um, classes in, in Israel. And two fish, probably pickled or dried. Uh, people call them little tidbits. Not much. There's a little sack lunch, the, the boy. Um, five crackers and two pickled fish. The point is there's no food available. There's nothing. And now in verse 10, Jesus positions the crowd for the sign. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And so Jesus now, with just a meager lunch, tells his disciples to make the people to recline. Um, that's the word here. It's not the common word for sit. It's the word for recline. You reclined at a meal. So when Jesus gives the instructions and the disciples tell the people, recline, everybody knows they're getting ready for a meal, okay? Um, recline in the grass, it's comfortable. Um, recline there, and Jesus is going to feed you. Disciples know what Jesus is saying. They must have um, been absolutely astonished. What is he doing? We get this little detail just from an eyewitness account of John. There was much grass in that region. Uh, Mark tells us it was green grass. Time before Passover, spring would have been lush, would have been a beautiful um, setting. Um, it was ideal for a place for people to sit down for the, the feeding. And now we come to verses 11 to 13, the abundant supply of miracle bread. Verse 11, we get the distribution of the bread. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. So Jesus takes these five pieces of hard biscuit-like barley breads and fish, and he gives thanks. Um, it would have been a typical prayer. Pastor Farrell has uh, quoted it for us often. It would have been something like, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth. He breaks it, starts to distribute it to the crowd. Mark tells us that the, the crowd was seated in groups of 50s and 100s. Okay, so you can think of them all scattered around in, in individual groups. And Jesus distributed it through his disciples. And Luke says that Jesus kept distributing it to them. So it has the idea that the disciples would come to Jesus, get some bread, take it to the groups, come back. Jesus has more bread. He gives it to them. They go and take it to the groups. They come back. They keep going until they have fed this entire multitude. Um, every time they return to Jesus, there was more. In other words, Jesus is creating this bread. He is creating this fish on the spot. It's just like turning water into wine. Um, he's creating something out of nothing. He is the creator. He's created bread and fish. MacArthur pointed out that this is bread which never grew from the ground, from barley or wheat, never grew from the ground, from fallen creation. Fish that never swam in the sea um, in a fallen creation. 
Jesus has created it out of nothing. And uh, it must have been delicious. Look at what it says. It says, they ate as much as they wanted. Then it says, verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill. So these people are stuffed. They're just gorging themselves. It's delicious. They've never eaten anything like this before. There's no more room left. And this is a key word in the story. Look at verse 12 again. It says, they'd eaten their fill. It means they were satisfied. Jesus tells them to gather over the leftover fragments. The word is the abounding fragments. Verse 13, they filled 12 baskets. Verse 13, the abounding fragments which were left over. The point is the abundant provision, more than enough food for this crowd. All out of nothing by the creator of the universe himself. Then verses 12 to 13, we get the collection of the leftovers. It says, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So being careful not to waste was a virtue um, in this society. Uh, so Jesus commands his disciples, go back around with baskets. Probably each disciple had a basket. And they collected the uh, leftover fragments. But Jesus also did this because he's after the disciples, right? He wants to teach them. He wants to mature their faith. But look what happens. They come away with each one having a basket brimming with leftover bread. The disciples um, had been absolutely astonished. Here, Jesus fed 20,000 plus people. There's enough remainder for each disciple also to just uh, be stuffed with this uh, miracle bread. So the disciples find out the answer to Andrew's question. Remember back in verse 8? What are these for so many? Had they had known and believed Jesus' ability, they would have understood that what seems little to man through Christ is made to abound to many. And when we come in a few weeks to the explanation of this sign, what is Jesus trying to teach? We will learn that the bread is meant to teach them something about Jesus. Jesus is the bread. Jesus isn't just a bread giver. He has come to be bread. The miracle bread he created in this sign is a dramatic illustration of himself. And this provision is so great that everyone who receives him, everyone who trusts him, who receives him as hungry people eating bread, right? That's the picture. They will be satisfied and given true spiritual life, eternal life. Just think about the abundant provision of Christ. Think about the billions that have already come to Christ um, through salvation history. They've eaten from him. They've received eternal life from him. They've enjoyed communion with God through him. And yet there is not one less ounce in him now than there was at the very beginning. He's inexhaustible. There's just as much Christ, just as much grace, just as much life for us as there were for the multitudes that went before us. The call is to come with all your sin, all your hungers, all your deadness, and by faith receive all that God is for you. Everything that God is for you in Christ. That's what you're called to do. It's inexhaustible.
He invites you to partake of this feast of himself by receiving, trusting, knowing God through him, embracing him as Lord of your life. But all of that's for the, uh, the weeks to come. Well, now we come to the climax of this story, verses 14 to 15, the incorrect response to Jesus' identity. Um, up to this point, the crowd has been passive. They follow him. Uh, they come up on the mountain. They're seated. Uh, they're told to recline. But now in verse 14, we get the crowd's conclusion. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign... It's that same pattern. They saw the sign that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So they know Jesus just did a sign. That's unmistakable to them. And because they saw the sign, they responded to Jesus seemingly positively, right? Sounds good. But we're going to see it was actually negative, just like all the other instances. So how do they respond they conclude that Jesus is truly the prophet who is coming into the world. He is the long-awaited prophet whom Moses wrote. So we've gone back there several times. Let's go again. Deuteronomy 18. Hold your hand here. Really quickly. Deuteronomy 18. Look at verse 15. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, this is Moses speaking, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. There's the expectation that one day, another, just like Moses would arise, the prophet um, who would come. And that's exactly what these people conclude. He says, this is indeed the prophet, the long-awaited prophet who Moses wrote of, um, who would be like Moses himself. It's come up several times in John already, a expected end-time figure, often a messianic figure. And this far, the crowd is correct. Is Jesus the prophet? He absolutely is. He is the one that Moses wrote of. But why do the people conclude this? How do they know he is the prophet? Why do they say that here? Well, certainly because Jesus just did what? He provided miracle bread for a multitude of people in the wilderness. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Moses. The crowd is correct. Jesus is the prophet who Moses has wrote. He is a new Moses in many ways. But where did the crowd fail? How do you respond to a prophet correctly? What do you do? Obey his word. Yeah, you obey his word. What did Deuteronomy 18 say? It is to him you shall listen. Listen to him. That's not what they do. They do just what Nicodemus did, just what everyone else did. His identity should have driven them to respond to his words. Go back to chapter 4. Look what the Samaritans did. Um, the woman at the well concludes Jesus is the prophet. Same reference. It was their ex expected Messiah. Look at verse 40, how different the Samaritan's response is. So she comes, says, Messiah is here. Uh, could it be him? Verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days longer. And many more believed because of his 
word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Heard what? Why did they invite Jesus to stay? Because if he is the prophet, he has words which must be listened to. Hear him. That is the response to Jesus' signs. Listen to him. That's not what the crowd does. So what does the crowd do? How do they respond? What is their purpose? Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus is well aware of the enthusiasm of the crowd at this time of year. It's Passover, remember? Galilee was a hotbed of Jewish zeal and nationalism. Uh, Not far from this location, if you go to Israel, um, there's a place called Gamla. It's up in the mountains of Galilee, and it was a small city, but it was known for um, its its rebellion to the the Roman government. Um, It revolted, and in 66 AD, um, the Romans surrounded it, broke in, and... uh, they all died, thousands of people in the cities built on, on this mountain. Um, all that to say, this, this is a place that's ready for Messiah. Um, they are zealous with Jewish nationalism, zealous for a redeemer like Moses to come and, uh, and deliver them from, from their oppressors, overthrow Rome. And Jesus' actions, inability to provide bread, spark it in excitement in the crowd, that he may be the one who would be their king and bring final deliverance to the Jews. Again, the sign certainly made them think of the provision of manna in the wilderness by Moses, who did what? What did Moses do? He led them out of slavery in Egypt. Common Jewish expectation was that in the end time, um, God would rain down manna again. So they're seeing all these connections. And they're ready to come and force him to be king to lead a revolution against Rome and usher in the the kingdom. Before we go on, what's the connection with being a prophet like Moses and being a king? You see that? So you're a prophet, you're like Moses, so we want to make you king. Um, Moses functioned in a kingly role for for Israel, right? He led them out of Egypt. Jewish tradition considered Moses to be a king-like figure. So it's only natural that the crowd sees Jesus as a new Moses, and they want him for the revolutionary king to deliver them from Rome. That's not what happens. Look at verse 15b. Jesus perceives what's going on, and immediately he withdrew again into the mountains, again to this mountainous region behind him by himself. He retreats back deeper into the Golan Heights, away from the crowd, He's indeed the prophet, the new Moses, the king, but not that kind of king is the point. He had not come to lead a revolution, to deliver people from earthly oppression, to reset social structures, all things which we're hearing in modern evangelicalism today, to inaugurate an age of health, wealth, and prosperity. He'll do all of that when he returns the second time to usher in his millennial kingdom, but the problem is that this is all that unbelievers want. This is all that unbelievers care about. They want Jesus only for what he will give them. They don't want him, right? They don't care about their grave spiritual condition. They don't love the glory of God revealed in Christ. They don't embrace him as their life and their satisfaction. They don't see him, their only access point to God the Father. 
They love the kingdom, but not the king. They want the physical realities of the kingdom, but not the spiritual realities. And what does Jesus do? He retreats from them. He will not be a king for that kind of people. Later in chapter 18, it tells us that Jesus is indeed a king, but his kingdom is not from this world. He's come to conquer, but not through military might, but through being crucified on a brutal cross. He's come to provide abundant life for people, not through physical bread, but through the sacrifice of his body. He's come not to give bread, but to be bread. He's come to save people, not from their enemies, but from the wrath of God. He's come to satisfy people, not with bread or the stuff of this life, but with himself. But unregenerate people don't care about that. It's only this life that matters. Jesus, for them, is a means to an end. He's not the end. And there's many people today who want that kind of Jesus. The only problem is that is not the Jesus of the Bible. People want a Jesus who liberates from oppression, who provides health, wealth, and prosperity, a therapeutic Jesus, a, a self-help guru. Others want Jesus who will get them out of hell but want nothing else to do with him. And Jesus retreats from all of those people. He came not to be a stepping stone to something else which people really love. He's come to be the one people love and embrace and depend on. So that's where the story ends. Um, Jesus leaves them behind. They missed it again, but he's not done with them. He's going to be so compassionate. He's going to come back around at the end of the, really the rest of the chapter, the bulk of it. He's going to be in a synagogue in Capernaum, and he's going to explain to them what they should have concluded. He's going to give them words they need to grasp on. So in closing, let me just ask you, how zealous are you for Jesus? Just heard an eyewitness account. Just as credible, just as deserving of response and faith as if you were there in person. That's what John 20, 31 tells us. What is Jesus to you? Is he just a means to another end? Or is he the life of your soul? Creator God in flesh. Come to bear God's judgment for you. Provide you with everything you need to know, love, fellowship with, and enjoy God forever. Does that matter to you? Or is it only this life? The signs are meant to drive you to his words. If you really believed who, who he was, you would run to his words. Does your time in the word and prayer reveal this about you? Do your efforts to bend yourself in submission to his words reveal that you truly know who he is? Do you desire to know him more? Or are you ready to move on to something else? These crowds, once they get their fill of bread, they're ready to move on. Not to Jesus, but to more bread, as we'll see later. Maybe you're like the disciples. You're, you're not the crowd. You responded rightly to Jesus, and yet you're so prone to forget him. Prone to drift away from dependence on him, so prone to forgetting that he has come primarily to give you himself. That by receiving him, you have eternal life. And what is that? John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they might know you. That's the goal. Receive Christ to know God. 
that is eternal life, that they might know you, the eternal God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the call is to respond to him with repentance, faith, obedience. He's more satisfying than the delicious meal these people ate. It's more precious. By faith in him, you experience today the same kind of life which you will experience for the rest of eternity. Eternal life is yours. Fellowship with God. So any questions, comments, the uh, passage? We're going to be... Uh, I just have a yes. question. How common was it in those days, I guess I'm just trying to get a picture of the scene, for people to follow their teachers? You mm -hmm. said there were perhaps 20,000 people yeah. following them. Was that common, or was it just like completely out of the ordinary to have that many people just travel around and follow a teacher like that? Sure. I certainly think it's unique. Um, rabbis, you see John the Baptist early on. He was regarded as a rabbi. He had disciples of his own. He certainly had a large crowd. I would say it paled in comparison with what Jesus had. Um, so certainly unique. It's really interesting is that at the end of the chapter, this crowd, they're identified as would-be disciples of Christ, uh, and they're gone after what Jesus reveals to them. He whittles it down to a very few number. <clears throat> Good. Other questions? Comments? Yes. Hi. Uh, I guess the question would be, why was it easier for Samaritans to listen to his words rather than his miracles? It's a really good, uh, really good question. Um, yeah, so I think it's similar to, so you know in the Gospels where it says prostitutes and tax collectors go in the kingdom of heaven before you Pharisees. Um, the Samaritans, it didn't take long for them to realize their alien, alienated condition from God. Right? Um, scriptures bore witness to it. They had a false temple. They had a false religious system. Um, Jesus exposed it. He told it to them. They were outcasts of the Jewish system. Um, it wasn't hard for them to get, uh, we're desperate for this one. The Jews, the Pharisees had everything. They had their system. They had their temple. They had all the bells and whistles. And they were content with it. They didn't realize all those things were pointing to him. So I'd say it's, it's probably a very similar phenomenon. We're going to see at the end of the chapter, really, the, the fundamental explanation for why anybody believes and why anyone doesn't. It's the grace of God through the Holy Spirit giving life to whomever he wants to and dragging people to the sun. So that's what's underneath it all. Good question. Yep. When Moses said that a prophet like me is going to come, I know that they were kind of confused. There was, you know, the Jewish people looking for a king. I mean, maybe a little bit of clarification. Why do you think he just left it as a prophet like me? Because he was a king, and that's what the Jewish people are still looking for now. Sure. Right. Yeah, I think it probably would have been uh, would have been understood. Moses' primary function was as a prophet, a mediator between God and man, bringing the words of God to men. But it's also that, like they clearly understood, he was a leader right, for the people. So, yeah, I think it would have just been naturally understood. The point of our passage is Jesus, a prophet, 
He is the prophet. He's like Moses, but he's much greater. Just as God is greater than Moses, so also Christ is greater than Moses, greater than any kind of prophet. But yeah, I would say it would have been assumed, understood. It's a good question. Cool. Alrighty. Well, let me pray and be on the lookout for the menu. I'm going to send out, I am not Jesus, so I cannot multiply bread. So be bringing your own and share. You caught me. <laughs> Father, Lord, we praise you. How could we know you, Father? Could we draw near to you apart from your Son? Thank you that in him, faith in him, what he accomplished, who he is, how he reveals you to us. Have eternal life. It's better than any bread, any life now. Oh, Lord, guard us. Show us where we are clinging to our lives too much to the disregard of Christ. May we love him more. May we respond to the test that he brings in our lives by growing in our faith and affection and love for him above all else. Lord, I ask that you bless the service to come, that you use it in our lives and produce fruit. Thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.